Okay, here we go, off and running. January 8, 2017, lecture discussion number 266 on the Book of Romans. And yes, we are back after our winter solstice, New Year's intermission. Uh, days are, are getting longer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, to be more accurate, Anchorage is experiencing increases in daylight again. The darkness is being driven back. What is it at night, though? It's what, five below? It was five below at my house last night. So we get five below, but we get a few pieces of daylight that we didn't have. We have uh, nonetheless navigated the worst of the winter, in my opinion. I struggle with the dark. There's no doubt about it. As I have aged, I do not like it. And only the cold remains, but that suffocating blackness is dispatched. And of course, mathematically, that's not true. As one of you mentioned, uh, what do we get, three minutes every day? But I love those three minutes. Those are mine. And I'm very happy about them. And I take time to notice them. Because instead of it going down at 3.57, it's now 4.02. And I'm standing there watching it stay. That's me. So it's emotional. I'm clinging to that three minutes. Okay, before we continue continuing in Revelation 17, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Revelation 13, Revelation 12, Romans 9, 10, and 11, and all of the other attendant passages probably ought to bring attention to that which has occurred in our short absence. I can't even begin to describe what it is. It's amazing. It's extraordinary. Um, Relax, though. This is not going to be Einsteinian gravitational theory versus modified gravity theory. As some of you might think, even though Bill brought uh, entanglement up in the pregame, which is fantastic, as you know. The, the universe is expanding. It's accelerating. The expansion of the universe is, expand, is accelerating. And that is fascinating, because that's the question. Why is the universe ripping itself apart? Because that is what is occurring. Did God design it to rip itself apart? Or is he ripping it apart? If so, why? Those of you who study this kind of stuff, and I know it's quite a few of you, that void theory is now the new du jour target of interest. Void theory is simply the fact they look at the universe and they see uh, clumps, if you will, concentrated um, matter, and then, they, of course, there's an absence of matter, absence of matter, and that would be voids. And this gets into what has caused the void. Do dark, does dark energy actually exist? And I know some of you wrestle with it daily, being the curious group that you are. And who can blame you for being so preoccupied with gravitational force? None. None can blame you. I say none. But that's not what I'm going to talk about. Einstein, relativity theory, whether or not it functions at the macro universe level. I just like to bring it up to you. Because I know that at some point it's going to be extremely important. And when it is, you will go, I heard that weird person say, does Einstein's relativity theory function for the entire universe? And if it does not, there's some significant implications of that. Do I think mankind will solve this soon? Yes, I do. Just like I think mankind is on the cusp of solving anti-aging and on the cusp of understanding 
as I said, uh, superposition or in, and entanglement theory. But we've had something much more interesting than that. That's just to get you warmed up. We have had geopolitical activity in the last three or four weeks that is astonishing. It's astounding. And it's impossible not to notice it. Well, it's not impossible. Lots of people don't notice it. But I know you do not let it get by you. The United Nations passed a resolution recently. And what was the purpose? The purpose of which was to deny the nation of Israel of its heritage to the city with respect to the city of Jerusalem. In other words, Israel will have no claim to Jerusalem. Why would they do that? Ask why. The United States, under the Obama administration's direct involvement, the Obama administration was active as an, it was an active collaborative influence in this resolution. That is not in dispute or controversy. The United States sided with the Islamic nations with regard to the heritage of the city of Jerusalem. Wow. As you might remember, we have been examining here at beautiful downtown Cliffside, which is neither beautiful or downtown. This mystery that is the city of Jerusalem, the mystery that encompasses Jerusalem, it's the, uh, it's the why Jerusalem question. I had a, a banjo teacher many years ago that t- just told me one day, he said, I understand that you are versed in these kinds of questions. It's probably 20 years ago now. And he, he said, why can't we give um, the Palestinians Florida? They don't want Florida. They want Jerusalem. Ask why. That's what we've been doing the last few weeks. What is causing Jerusalem to be the focus of Satan and through extension the Antichrist, the focus of their hatred? And then, of course, continuing that extension, the, the hatred of the world. What causes the world to hate the city of Jerusalem and what it represents? Why do they want to obscure that, uh, if not completely diminish it and eliminate it? What happened? That's the question I've asked all the time. What happened at Jerusalem, this exact location? When did it happen? Something happened where this city is uh, because God calls this city his beloved. This is the beloved of God. Jerusalem, the beloved city of God. Why does Satan and the relentless enemies of Israel seek the destruction of Jerusalem or the desire to erase Jerusalem's Jewish legacy? All of that starts with Melchizedek. That's why Genesis and Hebrews becomes important. You can figure out what happened at Jerusalem through Melchizedek. He does something. He does something with Abraham and he does something with the king of Sodom, who at that time is Satan. So it starts with Melchizedek. And as you may be aware, both our current president and his secretary of state were identified on the floor of the U.S. Senate. This, when I saw this, I went, oh my goodness. But they were identified on the floor of the U.S. Senate as unceasingly hostile to Israel. That's what the senator said. That may not be his exact words, but relatively close to that. And, and that, 
I believe that the senator was correct. I don't believe that you can um, debate whether or not the current president of the United States and his secretary of state are hostile to Israel. Uh, that, I think, has been established, which means now, oh, just uh, something else that I, I need to mention. You know, Bill the cow mentioned this as well, so I'll put it into the record. Jordan, Jordan, of course, means uh, it's too, how fascinating they would call a country Jordan. Now, that's because of the Jordan River. Uh, Joshua 3.16. The Jordan River has its genesis or its beginning in the city of Adam. And it descends from the city of Adam, as you've seen me many times, into the Dead Sea, where only evaporation allows for escape. So it is death and judgment, Jordan descending from the city of Adam into death and judgment. They named a country that. Wow, good thinking. And that country, Jordan, Jordan, said that if the United States Congress and the incoming presidential administration moves the the capital of Israel to Jerusalem, that would have catastrophic repercussions. Now, ask yourself, will the city of Jerusalem be identified by the United States and its allies as the capital of Israel? If it does, Jordan says catastrophic repercussions. What do they mean by catastrophic repercussion? It's clear, total war is what it will be. All that will take to start a total war in the Middle East is the United States Congress, Senate, and President to say, that's the capital of Israel. That is a city that was founded by Israel, whose entire history is Israel, and belongs to Israel. War. So I hope Jordan is right. I do. What we're seeing, and I should make this point too, I get carried away and I don't consider everything sometimes and I leave things out. Uh, But the U.S. House of Representatives is threatening to do something to who? The United Nations. For this resolution, what are they threatening to do to the United Nations? Expel it. There's an expulsion resolution in front of the U.S. House. If that passes, the funding of the United Nations And the expulsion of the United Nations would be an incredible lifetime experience for us. It's not really that old. If you study history, Woodrow Wilson had the grand idea of the League of Nations. It began, it's morphed into the United Nations. The United Nations has become almost an entire Islamic controlled uh, entity with a tremendous hatred for Israel. And so uh, it will be expelled. If it is expelled, let's just carry the premise to its conclusion. If we expel the United Nations from the United States and cease to fund it, who will fund it and where will it go? It'll go into the Middle East. Pick a place in the Middle East. What's that? It, well, it could, it could easily go uh, into Mecca. It could go into Iran. Why look, it could go into 
Babylon, that would be interesting, huh? This could all just, just poof. How fast can it happen? It can happen very quickly. Uh, I, I see hardly anyone in this country that thinks the United Nations is functional enough to fund it, much less keep it in the United States. There's no reason it has no, it has no uh, value anymore. All of that is leading to the isolation of Israel. That's what we're watching. When you see all these pieces, start noticing the isolation of Israel. It's now obviously proceeding. It's a worldwide construct, a worldwide boycott framework is in formation right now. What's the purpose of that boycott framework? What are they going to do to Israel? Its purpose, its stated purpose, they're not being um, covert or obfuscating it. They're letting you know immediately what they're doing. Stated purpose is to wreck destruction on, on the Israeli economic structures by boycotting everything they make. Well, they make some pretty cool stuff. It's going to be very hard to boycott them because everyone's going to want what they're doing. They are at the pinnacle of development scientifically. Uh, we take our F-35s over to Israel and give them to them so they'll do what? Fix them. Make them more formidable. And then, as a benefit to the United States, military technologies, Israel will relent enough of that information. So they're extraordinary, and um, it's going to be very difficult to, to destroy them uh, economically, but that is the stated purpose, that is the intention of this boycott framework. And who has picked up the boycott framework in this country, primarily? Who is boycotting the economic structures of the Israeli government and the Israeli economy? Who's doing it? American universities. Our university system, which is a complete mess, is divesting uh, of all Israeli productions and products and technologies. And American and European companies are likewise following suit. There's an acceleration. How's that word coming back here, thinking that I just had fun with the expansion of the universe? There's an acceleration of this hatred towards Israel once more. The poisonous uh, enmity uh, of the Jews is arising again as the Bible has said it would. At the end of the age of the Gentiles is a time of ruthless murdering of Jews and Christians. Number one group of people being uh, murdered today worldwide is who? Christians. Second year in a row. Why do you suppose this is? Coming next... Let me erase this. We're just having fun. We haven't really started the lecture. Okay, we might have fun the entire lecture. Yay. That means the buffet will come sooner. Uh, 1867. It's a jubilee year. Very important to study the jubilee years, which means they're every 50 years. When did it happen? Where is the first jubilee? 
Somebody has figured it out. Who do you suppose he is? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. That was 1867. This was now, where are we now? 2017. Those of you who have phones can now do a mathematical <laughs> computation. You can subtract 2000, I'm sorry, 1867 from 2017 and ask yourself, is it divisible by a factor of 50? Well, it is. And January 15th of 2017, something's going to happen. Today is January what? I have to look. Eight. I'll check. Yes, eight is correct. January 15th, 2017, 70 nations are going to come together. Not 69 nations, not 55 nations, not 80 nations, 70 nations are going to come together. Where did this start? The 70 nations. Where did the 70 nations start? Some of you will suggest Jethro. That wouldn't be a bad uh, proposal. But this Genesis 10 is where this begins. It is commonly concluded that 70 nations and languages result from the 70 grandsons of Noah. That is the most ancient position there. There's also the Sanhedrin. Is the Sanhedrin good? No, the Sanhedrin not good. Sanhedrin tries to kill everybody. There's 70. Sanhedrin, 70. So a Sanhedrin of nations will get together in seven days on January the 15th in Paris. What a great idea. What do you suppose they're going to do? What's the purpose of the 70 Sanhedrin nation? That's a redundancy, I know. They're going to come to Paris, France to decide if Israel will be reduced. See, Israel, I'm not going to draw very good Israel, but you kind of get the drift. Uh, let me make it bigger. They want to reduce Israel. You have the Golan Heights and you have Gaza. They want to make Israel smaller than it currently is. Uh, right now, the small sliver of land is far too much for the world to tolerate. We, you cannot have the Jews anywhere. That's ultimately the goal in the Middle East. They again, Israel uh, is to be driven into the sea. That's the overt intention. It cannot have any land at all in the Middle East. Not even a smallest bit. And any that it has now must be decreased. It must be shrunk to where they can no longer defend it. Make themselves easier to be destroyed is what the world wished to do. So that's going to happen on January 15, 2017. Seventy nations will gather to declare their decision about how much land Israel will be allowed to have. Do you think they have the authority to do that? They think they have the authority to do that. Who has the authority to decide how much land Israel will have? I mean, that's a, that is in the purview, that is in the singularity of God himself. I would suggest you tread carefully here, but they are not going to tread carefully. They're going to be very aggressive. I think it's obvious. I'll be shocked if I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, I'll only be wrong for a little bit, and then I'll be what? Right. 
So there's just a short period of time where you think I'm wrong. But I will not be wrong. How come I know I will not be wrong? Because I read the manual. The manual has not been wrong yet. Duh. And won't be. So these 70 nations will declare their decision as if they have authority. They will not protect the Jews. Who believes? Raise your hand. Who Don't raise your hand. Who believes the 70 nations will bring forth a resolution establishing Jerusalem rightfully as the beloved city of God, the God of Israel? Who thinks that's coming? No one. I said no one thinks that. The answer is no one. These nations, these 70 Sanhedrin nation thingy, will not side with Israel. Israel is going to be the target. The purpose is to give rationale to war. So you see the moving of the United Nations. If that occurs, you see the establishment of Jerusalem uh, as the uh, capital of Israel. That will cause a war. If Paris, the 70 nations... Uh, say that Israel has no right to the city of Jerusalem and they produce a document. What's the first thing that document is going to be? Who's going to get the document? Who's going to grab the document? Well, the enemies of Israel will and they will use that document as a rationale, as a, uh, as a, they will say this gives us the uh, right to invade. So, that, this Paris Thing, And they're a little worried, these, the Sanhedrin, a little worried because they see the United States already condemning them. When I say the United States, I do not, again, let me repeat, mean the executive, the current executive branch. I mean the U.S. Congress and the Senate. That's really impressive that these men and women are doing this. Yay. But understand that they won't prevail. The Islamic forces possessing a document justifying the removal of Israel will attack again. How's it gone for them in the past? Not well. Will that stop them? No. Back at the Dinah incident, are you familiar with the Dinah incident? That's Shechem, that is where uh, Israel in its infancy... murdered people who agreed to be circumcised and they were an abomination justifiably so uh, and there was great mourning for the reputation that the two of the sons caused in the Shechem massacre and they had to leave and they uh they were worried they were going to be killed as they re- retreated. I hope you have, are familiar with the story. But God does something amazing there. He puts a terror into the nations that would attack them. And they are frightened out of uh, rationality. And that happened in the wars over Jerusalem before. Specifically, 1967, that there was a great fear that came over the Egyptians and they retreated. And uh, 
So you uh, you should look for that and notice that happening again. That is an Ezekiel 38 notation. And I know, as again, that most of you are well-versed in this jubilee pattern, but I'm going to put it on the board for those who may not. I'm not too worried about you folks, but I really am doing this uh, today to read this into the record that goes on the Internet. 1867, and 50 years later, 1917, what happened in 1917 with regard to the nation of Israel? 50 years of jubilee. That was the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration was something that Great Britain did um, where it establishes the right to Israel to be reborn. Now, I know this Jubilee pattern. It goes 1917. Of course, the next is 1967. I bring that up again because that is the six-day Yom Kippur War, and we're sitting here in 2017. So, uh, what is going to happen is the question in 2017. Will we start out with the 70 nations? That's how we're starting January. Be a skeptic. Books have been sold with regard to this, but it's really difficult to look at it and go, my goodness... 1867 is a jubilee year on the Jewish calendar, and that is when uh, the, there was an emancipation of the Jews from Hungary and Austria. And that emancipation spread all over the world. And the excitement for the Jews to have Israel back swept the world. A Jewish Congress was created shortly after that, the first Jewish Congress, since uh, they were driven out in 70 A.D. And 1917, exactly 15 years later, as I said, Great Britain established the foundation for the rebirth of the state of Israel that sprang out in 1867. 1967, Israel regained control over the beloved city of Jerusalem. They got control of it for the first time since 70 A.D. So back they came, 1897 years elapsed between the times it took for Israel to get control over the beloved city. And now we're at 2017, and this Paris Assemblage, which has a singular, inevitable conclusion, they are going to cause a Middle East war again. And that's only seven days away on the 15th. That will be what? Well, we might show up on that day. There's still more. I haven't even begun. It's just, it's just starting to, you see this exploding mass of, of information and, and events. Israeli spy satellites have detected Russian surface to surface missiles. And where are they? They're Russian. They're in Syria. So I have surface-to-surface missiles, missile batteries in Syria. Is the Syrian rebellion essentially uh, done? How did the Russians end it? Brutally. They just butchered as many people as necessary. Bombed them into submission. 
They killed women, they killed children, they killed, they destroyed everything. That's how the Russians function. They don't have this try to protect the civilian concept the United States attempts. But Israel, Israeli spy satellites detected Russian surface-to-surface missiles. The Israeli spy satellites, I promise you, are the best in the world. Now, surface-to-surface or ground-to-ground guided missiles are primarily anti-tank systems. Do the Syrian rebels have any tanks? No. Does the Syrian, the other thing you can use them for is naval operations. Do the Syrian rebels have any aircraft carriers? No. Do they have any submarines? No. Uh, how about ISIS? ISIS have tanks of any significance that require the Russian put missile, uh, surface missile, I'm sorry, I can't even say it, SSMs, there we go. So what's the obvious question? Why does the Russian, why do the Russians, why did they bring SSMs into Syria? Who's armor, who has armor divisions? As to the side with the withdrawal of Great Britain from the economic structure of Europe, Germany and France have now assumed much greater power. Great Britain withdraws, a vacuum now exists, nature abhors a vacuum, it's a fundamental principle. Who is likely to step into the vacuum that has been created by Great Britain leaving? Somebody will do it. Who do you suppose is extreme, is on the ascendancy and is absolutely beginning to develop tremendous world power? Again, if Russia moves to where Great Britain was and solidifies with Germany and France. I have a German-France-Russian triad. Well, then that's a my, my, my. I have Great Britain, United States, Australia, Canada. Those are the lions of Ezekiel. Russia, Germany, France, Turkey, Iran in control of Europe and the Middle East, except for Israel. That is exactly Ezekiel 38. It is in place. And there we are. Will God defend his nation? Duh. What is it that we're supposed to do as a church, as Christians, what are we supposed to do? Well, one thing. We're told to do one thing. Can we do one thing? I mean, we got one job. Can we do it? Probably not. It's back to Bill, Bill the Fast. Dingleberries and, and uh, mucus, right? That's us. Mucus in the front, nickelberries in the back. We have one thing we're supposed to do. Okay, maybe it's a little bit more complex than that, but I'm going to call it one thing. I'll give you these scripture references, mostly not for you. Don't think I'm picking on you. I'm not. Just again, I'm trying to get them into the record so that 
you're accessible. You'll understand why, I hope, as we finish it. Matthew 24, 42. Matthew 25. I'm told all the time, people say to me, my favorite part of the lecture is when you turn your back on the audience. Because that gives you a chance to run for the buffet table and the coffee machine. So, I'm doing this on purpose. Uh, Mark uh, 13.35. I'll just put five of them up here for now for expediency's sake. Luke 21.36. Actually, it starts at 34, goes further than 36. And Revelation 3.3. All of those are what I call watch therefores. You see, Jesus Christ issues us a command. It's not a suggestion, not a suggestion. It is a commandment, a direct, unequivocal order. Watch therefore, watch therefore, watch therefore. The God of creation, who is the King of the Jews, the great I Am, the Ancient of Days, He charges, He mandates us to watch therefore. What's the obvious question? Why and what are we supposed to watch? Luke 21.36 Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. There it is. That's the definitive watch therefore in my opinion. Let me repeat it. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. That's our job. Son of man, ancient of days, Daniel 7, 9 through 14. They are the same title. I made that case a few weeks ago. Know what the totality of those two titles of Christ are so that when you see Son of Man, you immediately go back to Daniel 7, 9 through 14 and recognize the Ancient of Days. So that seems to be the lost in today's Laodicean age, Revelation 3, 16. Where was I? I've got to keep from ranting. Watch therefore. Luke 21, 34 begins this. Starts this watch therefore in Luke 21. And it goes this way. But, take heed. Very important. But, take heed. Come on. Take heed to yourself lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore. More information. The first word, the but, of Luke 21.34 is crucial, critical. It is a contrastive introduction, meaning that what follows is a distinct subject to that which is immediately before it. 
which is the fig tree, which is Israel. Often uh, the, the but that you see translated, and you can look at your, uh, some will have and. It really should be but concerning. So Christ is changing here. He has talked about the fig tree. He has talked about his beloved nation. And now he's going to change the subject. He's going to say, but concerning. But concerning, take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation. What's that? Let's uh, let's take it. A poll. Don't ever answer a poll. How many of you are weighed down with dissipation? I would uh, posit a guess. All of us. Take heed, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. I, I don't have a drinking problem. <laughs> As some would define it. And cares of this life. What is dissipation? What's he talking about? What dissipates? What does dissipation mean? Take care not to be weighed down with dissipation. That which fades. That which dissolves. Quit caring about things that, uh, that go into dissolution. And drunkenness. And cares of this life. And that day come on you unexpectedly. See, if you are weighed down with dissipation, you are not watching, you're, into, you're weighed down with drunkenness and in the cares of this life, that day will come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore. Again, he's changed subjects from Israel to something else. So what is the change of subject? It's that day. What's that day? The result of that day is to stand before the Son of Man, before the Ancient of Days. We are to watch, therefore, and pray always, because we're going to stand before the Ancient of Days on a day. Something's going to happen. That day that he's talking about is what? It is the taking of the bride. Know when the taking of the bride is coming. Wait a minute, how can I know? No one will know, right? Well, let's talk about that. No, watch therefore for that day because it will be a snare for all those who dwell on the face of the earth. What's a snare? It's not a drum. Okay, it is a drum. But it's really a what? In the context. A trap. And you need to be counted worthy to escape. If you've been attending in November and December here, you should recognize this standing before the Son of Man as the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment of the bride. The believers in Christ who are taken with suddenness. And that suddenness, this taking, is a snare, a trap for the world. Lots of questions are now filing, flying at us. Not filing, flying. Who wrote filing? What an idiot. (laughs) It doesn't even look the same. But I said it because I wrote it. And who am I to argue with me in front of you? (laughs) 
I've been making the case, as you know, that the judgment seat of Christ is the contributory event of the Revelation 12 angelic war. Do you remember that? If I flip this over, and I will, because it is the incredible, amazing, holy pride grace word, on the other side, if I have the strength to loosen it, and I still do, so my role in the marriage of opening things is intact. I have said that the judgment seat of Christ is what causes the war on in heaven and the war on earth. That is the cause. He is saying, you are going to stand in front of me in the bride on this day of the judgment seat of Christ. You need to know that. What then is resolved at the judgment seat, the hearing, the trial of the bride that has been taken now, suddenly, the taking of the bride. She is made spotless, she is cleansed. What is resolved at this judgment seat, this trial of the taken bride, that is the primary reason of the war between the four forces of Satan and the forces of Michael and the war in which the Antichrist is killed on earth. So here is, let me repeat it. We are to pay attention so that we will be in the bride when the bride is abducted. We're supposed to watch. Everyone who watches is abducted. Now, is, is there going to be people who don't watch that are abducted in the bride? Yes. Dean is holding one of them. They're not good at watching except for where mom is. They're good at that. The point of it is, is that we're to, he tells us, listen, don't be caught unaware. Watch for this. And what well, this judgment seat causes a war on earth. And it causes, if you wish to think of cause and effect, it doesn't really. I'm just using human, humanistic language to make it explain, to explain it better, I hope. A war on earth, war in heaven, judgment seat of Christ. So, I ask, what's going on up there? What's, what, what in this judgment seat results in these wars. And that's pretty much where we left off in Lecture 265 and where we'll go in Lecture 267 for those of you who are trying to keep up. Thus, by keeping score. Thus, the first obvious question, what is decided at the judgment of the bride? How so is it decided? On the basis of what is it decided? In other words, it's proved. Something is proved. What's proven? Christ proves something here. And that proving causes this war in heaven. How did it happen? What is the proven thing? Then the subsequent evident question becomes, how is the taking of the bride a trap for the world that remains? Why is it a trap? What do they think? How many of them even know about it? Do they even know that the bridegroom has come and taken his bride? Taken his bride. Certainly the world will notice something. They will notice something. They will notice that Israel is seemingly alone and abandoned. 
Not necessarily do they attribute that to the rapture or the taking of the bride. They may just look at the degradation, the fact that the, those nations that, that are most affected are no longer functioning, or there is a masking event. And God is known for his masking events. Israel will not be alone. Israel is not abandoned. That's a grave error to think so. But that, of course, is the universal, if you will, the ubiquitous mistakenness that is in the church today. As I speak about this, the overwhelming majority of the world, including all of Christendom, the far predominant teaching in the, in the Laodicean contemporary church is that God is going to abandon his nation of Israel. That's what they teach. God is going to reject. God has rejected. He has replaced his nation. The cults are very fond of this teaching. It's everywhere. And that's a complete disregard of Scripture. You cannot disregard Scripture more than that. It's not true. And to think that it is true is madness. Then insanity is the new normal in Laodicea. That's why the church today is the vomit church. No understanding of who Christ is. No understanding of what he will do. Complete obliviousness. Is that a word, obliviousness? Okay, cool. The bad news is I won't get credit for making it into a word. God and Jesus Christ, Jesus God, will defend his beloved city and his chosen nation. You see that in Exodus 14, 13 through 14. Be still and see the salvation of the Lord. That's what he tells them as they're crossing the Red Sea. Shut up. Stand still and see the salvation. Who's the salvation? That's Christ himself. See Christ. I can read it this way. Be still and watch what Christ does. The Lord, Christ will fight for you. Salvation, the man, God man will fight for you. And you shall hold your peace. That's the shut up part. So that, again, why do we watch therefore? What are we watching for? Matthew twenty-five, thirteen. God tells us, oops, I gotta go back. Matthew 25, 13. God tells us that we neither know the day or the hour. That's Christ God telling us that. You don't know the day or the hour in which the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, is coming. So you're not going to know the day or the hour. And notwithstanding that, we're ordered to watch therefore. If we do not know the day or the hour, what will we know? What's left to know? Do you know the decade? Do you know the year? Will it happen in a jubilee year? Will it happen on a feast day? You won't know the day. You won't know the hour. How many hours in a day? Twenty-four. What time? What what time is it going to happen? How, how many zones we got in Alaska? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have less than we should. Uh, we used to have when I was young. How many we have, Bill? What do we have? 
five of them, I think. There's a lot of them. All the way across. That was done, I think, primarily all the way to the Aleutian chain, right? From Juneau to the Aleutian chain. That was done to convince uh, Texas that it was tiny. <laughs> I think that was... Uh, we got rid of that eventually. Um, I, I have a, oh I can't I don't have time but I okay I have a little time a wonderful lady from South Carolina called to sell me something and she had no idea that it was me or she would never have called me if she had known and so as soon as I knew that she had called me I knew she didn't know me which gave me a distinct advantage but we ended up in a long 30 minute conversation on all kinds of things as you can imagine Never once did she mention to me what she was trying to sell, which was cool. But she was fascinated by the size of Alaska and the difference between South Carolina and Alaska in almost every element, philosophically, theologically, geopolitically, uh, everything is different. We are not the same as anybody. It's really kind of weird. Which is why most of us are here, to escape... The judicial system, as you know. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> are we going to know the decade, the year, the month? As you are aware, Christ's statement that we neither know the day or the hour is within the context of the eighth and ninth step of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. If you don't know that, you will make mistakes. You will think things that, if you wish, call it the pattern. You will think things that are simply not true because you're disregarding the context of it. All kinds of heresies come out of the fact that people don't know that you... uh, will not know the day nor the hour is a statement that is in this context of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. Who does? Who is identified in that ceremony as the one who knows the day and the hour and who makes the declaration? Somebody is assigned that role. We'll get to that in a minute. That's the same for Matthew 24. Oh, that's not on the board. 36. But concerning... Um, But concerning starts that as well. It's a change of subject again. Jesus is moving from the fig tree to another matter um, in Matthew 24, 36. So you have the fig tree again, and then you have this next subject. And that next subject is Noah and Lot. That next subject is two women and a thief. And he says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. If you think Christ doesn't know when he's coming, then you have made a horrible mistake in regard to that sub, or to that verse. That is in the context of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. Again, eighth and ninth step. It's very much the same as John 14.3. Also a Hebrew betrothal reference. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? John 14.10-11. So John 14.3-11 has all of that. He says what every groom says to the bride, I go and prepare a place for you. Do not think 
that there's some separation between him and the Father. He's explicit, definitive, John 10.30. I and Father are one. Sameness, totality, entirety, infinity, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. The point is, is that in order to understand the meaning, because this is out of this comes the watch therefores, right? The entirety of what Jesus is saying, it's required that we gather all of the eighth and ninth step references and list them, accumulate, compile them, and put them into a big group. Now you will understand all of these verses. To try to do it without that, I wouldn't say futile. Okay, I would say futile. You're going to miss. Assign the context of the Hebrew Pedrovil pattern. Now, only now, can you write rightfully understand what Christ is saying. Why he said, watch therefore. Avoid the heresy of separating Christ from the Father, Christ from his Godhood, uh, which is very common. So in the context of the bridegroom leaving to prepare a place for the bride, and the bride being set apart, she waits now for the sound of the trumpet. She's listening for the cry, the behold, the bridegroom comes. Who gets to say that? Somebody says it. There's a trumpet and somebody says, Behold, the bridegroom comes. And that's proclaimed as the bridegroom abducts the bride. And again, the bridegroom abducts the bride really fast. And you have to know, if you're part of this marriage ceremony, the bridegroom has turned to his bride, a Hebrew ceremony, and he says, I go now to prepare a place for you. And he goes. How long does he leave for? What's traditional? And the bride is then separated out and she's put into a place where she is consecrated and she waits. And she believes he's coming to get her. And she usually has an entourage. You can remember the the virgin parables, right? The twelve virgins. And the bridegroom comes, the groom comes while she's waiting with such quickness that he is unnoticed. In and out. You hear a trumpet. Behold, the bridegroom comes. Boom. Bride's gone. It is the role of the father to announce the time that the son comes, which is the meaning of but my father only. The authority to fulfill this step can only be within the triune Godhead because of who the Son is. But my Father only is the opposite of what people say. It is a declaration by Christ that he is God. And people will say to you, it is evidence that he is not omniscient. Back to the question. Why do we, why should we watch why should you watch? He says, watch therefore. What are you watching for in the context? It's not the fig tree. It's but concerning. It's something else. Why would you watch? It's obedience. It's a direct order. 
Don't focus on things that dissipate. Pay attention. Obedience should be foremost. Let me try this from another angle, though. What is Christ's purpose for ordering us to watch for his coming as the bridegroom? He's saying to us, watch for step 10, watch for step 11. To the early church, they're watching what? Step 9. Now, they may have been able to watch step 10 and 11, but to us, he's saying, watch for 10 and 11. Is the purpose that he's telling us to watch for 10 and 11 because he's just an authoritarian and he's doing it to find out if you will be obedient and if you're not, he's going to blow you up? Probably not. That would be, what's the word I want? Doctrinally stupid. Again, common. No lack of stupid people in the church. Present company not accepted. case you think otherwise. Steps 1 through 9 have come. He is telling us to watch for 10, 11, and 12. So far, 1 through 9, he's done them perfect. In order, completed them all. What do you think the chances he's going to do 10, 11, and 12 are? Pretty darn strong. Like, impossible not for him to do it. So he's not doing it for his sake. That's a duh, no. Then how is it that we who choose to watch are impacted? What are the attributes of those who are, who are watching for the 10th and the 11th step? How did I begin this lecture? I'm giving you evidence of the 10th and the 11th steps. Because we're supposed to notice these steps so that we can be aware that the day is coming. And those who, uh, the attributes for those who are watching, they pray. They're watching and they're praying. All the time people say to me, I pray constantly. Good for you. That's not the order. The order is watch and pray. Pray for what? A Mercedes, right? Okay, I'm supposed to watch for the day of of the judgment, of the taking of the bride, and I'm supposed to pray for uh, a boat, a check in the mail. Really? No, please stop. Prosperity, suppose, don't, don't focus on things that dissipate. I, I don't have any paper in my pocket, but I left papers in my pocket that uh, went through the wash and I do it a lot. What happens to them? They dissipate. Much. I put papers, okay, I put money, paper, in my glasses case. I, had a, I was saving it for something. I think I was up to $200. Lori cleaned. My glasses case is gone from its secret hiding place. If I am remembering its secret hiding place. You're asking, why am I hiding it from Lori? Clearly I'm not hiding it very well. Uh, no, she knew that it was there, but didn't open it. Uh, we can't find my my little uh, money thing that I use every now and then. Uh, point of it is, is that it dissipated. Did I fear? Did I feel bad about it? No. It's one of the advantages of my economic condition. I don't care. 
I really don't. I'll be fine. Clearly the steps and the prayer are connected. You're not praying to get money or a boat or Mercedes or prosperity. You turn those people off. They're just criminals and heretics. They should be beaten. They will be beaten. I won't have to do it. Fortunately for them. They are in for a a horrible reckoning. These prosperity people. Horrifying. Luke 21.36 again. Pray that you may be counted worthy to escape. That's what you pray for. That I am worthy to escape. All these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. What things? What are we going to escape from what? He just said, pray that you are worthy to escape. That you are in the bride that escapes. What does the bride escape from? Where does the bride go? Who doesn't escape? Who doesn't stand before the bridegroom? Who stands before the bridegroom in a, in a wedding? The bride does. Duh. So, you're going to stand before him in the bride. When does the bride escape? How does the bride escape? Can she escape on her own? Make a run for it in her wedding dress. What do you think? No. The groom has to come and steal her. She has to abduct and take. Remember, the bride has now been set apart for almost 2,000 years. Who's in the bride? How many dead people? Lots of dead people. They go first. They rise first. Right? And then those of us who are alive join them in the air. Next week, we will hit this again.